All right, y'all, good afternoon, and please, I am so excited to welcome you all to our next episode of Step by Step with some skips along the way. I'm one of your hosts, Gabriel Gray, um, the president-elect of the Maryland General, General Music Teachers Association. Um, our current president, Dr. Ashley Shikoni, she could not be here tonight because she is getting over an illness. However, I am not by myself. I do have our first guest of the season. This guest was born in Baltimore, Maryland and attended Baltimore City Public Schools where his musical journey began in the sixth grade at Booker, Booker T. Washington Middle School. He later attended Baltimore City College High School and eventually Morgan State University where he participated in the wind ensemble as well as the marching band the Marching Concert and Jazz Band. In 2009, he obtained his bachelor's degree in music, then immediately pursued an MAT at the graduate level. He initially became a full-time public school music teacher in 2011. In 2016, he began coursework toward a doctorate in urban educational leadership from Morgan State University. He is currently the band director and music teacher at Hamilton Elementary and Middle School. Some of his hobbies include watching historical documentaries, creating hip hop productions, cooking, and watching basketball highlights. You probably recognize this person. He's one of our fellow board members, our member at large, Mr. Otis Eldridge Jr. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm very, very thankful and happy to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely, man. It is an honor to have you here. So everybody, we are going to discuss a topic that really means a lot to the both of us. And this topic has to do with Black male educators, not just in all of music education, but also specifically at those formative years in elementary as well as middle school, and how our presence can have such a huge impact on not just students of color, but all students from all backgrounds. And this is a topic that we are so excited to get into. All righty. So, Otis, my first question for you. At your school, in addition to band, do you also teach general music? Yes, sir. Definitely. All right. And what grades do you teach from the youngest to the oldest? Uh, well, in general music, I teach pre-K to third. I've gone as high as fifth in general music. But in band, I teach fourth to eighth. So I kind of teach, uh, I span the whole entire grade band of the school from pre-K all the way to eighth grade, depending on what subject they're teaching. But in general music, primarily pre-K up to third grade. Okay, okay. So your general music um, grade levels and mine aren't very different. I've taught as young as pre-K. Last year was my first time doing that. Very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my oldest has been fifth grade within my school. That's fifth grade general, as well as chorus as well. I've worked with middle school with all county, but that was more of a volunteer. They needed somebody. And I've worked with high school musical productions as well. But elementary pre-K through five has been my primary area. And in my seven years, I know that I've experienced a lot, whether it be positive negative or in the middle as a black male educator. 
And tonight is all about our perspectives, our experiences, and also how we see education going ahead when it comes to diversity, not only with our students, but with our teachers and our staff. So let me tell you first, Otis, what is your why? I know that's a question we get asked a lot and we're sometimes tired of asking, but what was your why to become a music educator? Okay, that's actually a really good question. And um, really, it kind of goes back to the fact of my participation in band. I started in band when I was in the sixth grade, 11 years old. And but pretty much by the time I got to college, I had a lot of different types of interests and different things that I spent time doing. But I realized that music and band was the, the thing that I spent the most time in. So when it came time to pick a major, I had a lot of different interests, but I was like, I can't really see myself majoring in something other than music because I haven't spent the amount of time doing anything else that I've spent playing the saxophone. So when I first started, it was really because I just wanted to have a job in music and I didn't want to be what uh, people call a quote unquote starving artist. So it was like, that was really my why. Now that transformed over time, but my in initial introduction into, co into the career was just wanting to have a stable job in music. And I'll kind of tie that in, in gen uh, later on. But as I got into the career, that's when I kind of started to look around and see that there weren't many people who looked like me. When I say look like me, I didn't I don't mean racially, but I mean like racially and both gender and, you know, uh, my my role and my uh, identity as a man, like a heterosexual man or whatever, just a man in general. Whether you're talking white men, black men, there just aren't a ton of men in schools and research supports that. So I started like reading. I feel like teaching is the kind of career where you're kind of it takes a few years for you to really figure out what you're doing. So the first year I was just trying to survive. Second year, I kind of figure out what to do and how to do it. Third year, it was like, okay, I kind of pretty much got a good gist of this. And then you start kind of like asking questions about the career because now you figured out how to do it. You figured out how to lead a lesson, how to like actually get from the beginning of a class to the end without feeling like you're about to go crazy or like, you know, where you're actually able to have some command of it. And so then I started asking questions about the career itself. And I'm like, hmm, why are there so few black men? Why is it that I never really thought about it that way. So the reason why I never really saw myself as having a dearth of black men in my educational experience is because of music. And I realized that black men, where most of the time where we interact with the school building, it's either through being the music teacher, being a administrator, custodian, behavior manager, or PE teacher. Those are like the pretty much five dominant places where you see black men in schools. So I realized like, whoa, I didn't realize, I didn't uh, feel like I wasn't around black men because from the sixth grade, all my music teachers were black men. High school, my, mu my band director was a black man. College, my band director was a black man. So I was surrounded by black men because of music. But the students who aren't in music, they're not necessarily having some of those same experiences. So uh, my why, I started to realize like, whoa, there aren't a ton of people who look like me. And you know, like there's a reason why you have two parents. You have a mother and a father because you need balance. You need both the male and the female perspective when you're talking about raising well-rounded and well-adjusted children. You just, it's just a, a fact of nature. So 
uh, I started to realize like, whoa, I'm not just a teacher. Like I'm for some of these students, I might be one of the few black men they get to experience in this capacity. And it made me take my job way more seriously and just kind of transform the way that I looked at myself as an educator and as a man in general. I know that was a long answer, but yeah, that, that, no, 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 that, that I love it. I love it. And so much of what you said, I can relate to again, also, also as a black male myself, you know, again, seven years in one experience, one example I give you is that in my school, I've been in the same school my entire career. There have only been two instances where there have been on the teacher side of the staff, there have only been two two instances where we've had more than one black male teacher besides myself. The first time was my second year. It was myself, music, of course. And then the other was a fourth grade, grade level teacher. And then after that, a few years went by. Now we're this year and it's myself and it's a fifth grade teacher. And each time we gravitated toward each other because once again, it was only the two of us. And we always felt a need to check in on each other, to say hello to each other, and to make sure that we were all okay. So that camaraderie is also awesome. But again, it's that feeling of we need to check on this person to make sure that they don't feel alone, they don't feel unsupported, or they don't feel that their role, no matter what they do, doesn't matter as much as all the others. And Coming up through my schooling toward becoming a music educator, I definitely had that. I went to a school that was, it was a PWI. It was, it was majority white. So take that on top of being in the College of Education, the majority of those teacher candidates were white women. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, my student teaching semester, I was one of two men the other man was was a phys ed major and yes the only black person in that entire group now they were all supportive of me but i definitely felt coming through my schooling those senses of people being shocked that i was <laughs> because that, that i was studying education some who were taken aback and a few instances where some were just like, huh, I wonder how that's going to turn out. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I could have, yeah. And I could have let that, I could have let that stop me. I could have let that affect me. But if anything, it kind of motivated me more just to show, hey, this is who I am. What some of y'all might have heard of with Black men in media or on television. Look, that is very one-sided, very stereotypical. Let me show you what excellence will look like. And it was motivation, especially when I came across this article about how, like you said, black male educators, we make up the smallest portion of the profession nationwide. And also here in the state of Maryland, nationwide, I believe we're about 1.2%. Mm -hmm. And according to the Baltimore Sun, I actually saw that for the, for the state of Maryland, we make up 4%. Better than nationwide, but still extremely low. Yeah, man. Some of the things you're saying are, I mean, if, if you've if you've you have this lived experience, so we know this to be true. But now we're starting to see 
uh, newspapers. We're starting to see a more academic research that actually points to these things that we're saying. And, you know, it's it's a real thing. Like I, I didn't go to a PWI, but I definitely taught at one for a year. And uh, there was only there were only three black people in the whole college of education and uh, in general. And, you know, it's it, it's not something you want to feel, but you, you're going to feel alone. If, because this is a career that is not is dominated by people, especially us as black men, where we are the smallest population. Now, that it hasn't always been that way. And so one of the things that uh, my research, I'm currently pursuing my doctorate, as you alluded to in my in my in my uh, introduction, is like I'm writing my dissertation about resilient black male urban elementary educators. That's almost like a uh, a population of people that is like a wisp. It's like, like you said, like black men co comprise 1.2% of teachers nationwide. But when we're talking about urban elementary educators, that population in that pool becomes very small because they're one of a lot of it has to do with misconceptions about men not wanting to work with young children and, you know, those types of things. And, you know, historically, black, teaching black men have been some of the most prominent educators historically right there was a time where some of the, the most like really the best job you could get as a black man was to be a teacher or to be a preacher those were like you know two of the best jobs you could get especially as an intellectual black man uh, uh, intellectual man like you weren't able to access some of those other areas of you know careers so as things started to progress men started to move into different areas and so uh, it, uh, education became a female dominated career. And, you know, there are different ideas and different uh, people who have opinions about why that may be. But the fact is that it's now a point where men are making up a super, super small percentage, whether you're talking about white men, Asian men, black men, men of all races and ethnicities are like basically making up a quarter of the teachers nationally and 75% is women of all different races. And we know that white women make up the largest group. But, you know, I think that the more that we have conversations like this one, the more that we kind of let people know, like, listen, if you want to actually infect real change in the community, in your city, in your state, then as a black man, being a teacher is one of the best ways that you can do that. Because, you know, Frederick Douglass has a quote where he says that it's easier to build strong children than it is to repair broken men or broken adults. And I don't think he's using men in the like the man male specific terminology. But I guess in this instance, it would apply. Like if we're building strong children, those children are going to we won't have to undo some of the traumas and things that they've experienced if we're actually going in and being very intentional about pouring into them. So one of the things that's missing, especially amongst black people, is the male perspective and the male voice. And it's like, you know, like we know that there are black men who are excellent and who do great things and who are always trying to progress and do better for themselves and for people and, and humans in general. But a lot of the times, the larger conversation surrounding Black men is about our pathology, about our uh, negligence, or about our lack of fatherhood, or about our, us, and even in this context, about us not wanting to be teachers or not wanting to serve in that way. And so uh, I think that we have to start lifting up the voice of people like us who are willing to go in and do this work and let people know, like, listen, if you actually want to do something and you want to have a change, you want to make a change and you want to 
you know, uh, like really have a lasting impact on society, that this is a place you can do that. Absolutely. You know, the first week of school, a student made, made me cry in the best way. And just telling this student's story. So he's in fifth grade now and he's now um, playing the cello. He's in he's in his first year of strings. I've taught him since kindergarten. So he's one of my kind of originals because I started halfway and then I my first full year was in August. So when he was in kindergarten, I remember when he first came in, the boy was hot, as in he had a temper. <laughs> he, it was issues with just sometimes patience and feeling like if he was wronged, he would just get really upset, really tense. And I remember when he would come in to music and whenever he would do that, first, when I see a student who it's having those issues with expressing their emotions in a healthy way. I always try to be the calm to their storm. So I will just come and say, I would tell him usually, put your shoulders down, breathe, sit down. Now with the words I've heard you use, because even then I knew he was very intelligent and had a good vocabulary. What is going on? And beyond that, when he would come to music, even when he was really upset about something, something about the class would calm him down. So I didn't always have to directly talk to him. Sometimes I would go on and he would just come in. And then by the time he got to first grade, he didn't really have much of a temper anymore. Mm -hmm. Not really much of a temper, was much more calmer, had his moments a few times and got to the point to where, you know, the only way he would become a little angry is if you messed with him. It wouldn't be just like a switch like it was at the beginning of kindergarten. All right. So that was one progression. Was able to control his emotions a little bit better. Second grade, this is when I want to say this was COVID. So I only saw him over a computer screen. Mm -hmm. But he would ask me a lot of great musical questions some that I didn't even plan in the lesson. Right. Third grade, year, year after virtual and hybrid, he's asking me questions like, by this point, he's growing his hair out. He's in between styles. And he's asking me when he was in between, he was like, Mr. Gray, does my hair look crazy? <laughs> All it was was, you know, like you take your hair out and it's just, it's just in an afro. And his hair curls over, so it was pretty curly there. So then I had the conversation of, no, you don't look crazy. Your hair is in its natural state. Right. And you're in between styles right now. So you could walk like this every day, and that's normal. There's nothing unusual about it. Fourth grade comes, and I'm noticing he's asking me more, he's asking me more questions about fifth grade and what he can do for signing up for band, signing up for strings, or signing up for chorus. Because he can also sing. I really thought he was going to join my chorus. I'm a little jealous. But that's, <laughs> but that's beside the story. And I promise y'all, I'm, I'm, I'm leading to something. So then near the end of the year, he's calling me Stevie Wonder. Because <laughs> by this point, now my hair's long. 
Mm-hmm. And I want to say I had these twists at the time. And he started calling me that. And I said, are you calling me that because I have twists, not not dreads like Stevie, but twists and I got these shades on because I'm outside at duty. <laughs> First, he says like, yeah. And then another teacher asked him, why do you keep calling him Stevie Wonder? And he says, because Mr. Gray, is, he's the king of music and he's so amazing and awesome. That's amazing. And then fifth grade, <clears throat> first week of school. He had his first day of strings. They didn't play their instruments yet. Some of them didn't even have it yet. But I asked him, how'd it go? How was it? And he says, I think I'm really going to love this. And I said, I'm so glad. And I remind him, you're starting an instrument. It's not going to sound pretty right away, but keep at it. You're making an object sing. That's not easy. And you're just starting, but I know you're going to be fantastic. And he says, Mr. Gray, I just want you to know that you are the greatest Black male music teacher ever. Mm. First, I'm like, huh? (laughs) Okay, okay. okay." I'm like, that was such a loaded compliment. I just said, I pause and I'm like, thank you. (laughs) And... I went through that whole synopsis that I told you all about, not in great detail, but I said, I remember kindergarten and I know you remember too, but to see your progression to now is, I love it. And to, for you to say that I played a role in that, it makes me feel so amazing. So I just told them break a leg with this class, you know where to find me if you need me. And I went to my room and I closed the blinds and I cried. <laughs> Understandably, <laughs> man. Like, and you know, we, it's, you know, that those types of experiences are, are so often like, you know, like I'm just listening to you speak about that. And I'm like, man, I'm like flashing so many kids that just walk into my room and give me letters saying, I love you. You're great. You're amazing. And they're like, and they're like, Mr. E's the best teacher. And I'm like, personally, I'm like, well, I'm just being me. But really, that is what it is. And so the the fact is, like, like when I'm listening to you, I'm also I'm also hearing the research base and the things that actually support what you say. And one of the reasons why this is such a big deal is because that student that you have that he feels like you're the greatest black male music teacher ever. Think about what a student has to feel about you in order for them to vocalize something like that. Cause that's very, like you said, that's a very loaded statement. That's exactly what I said. I said, I'm just thinking like, he just, yeah. like you said, he verbalized that right to the T. And like you said, that's the proof of the research, but it's like the kid says it, you don't even need the research. There's the proof right there. That's exactly, exactly what I said. That's the proof. That's the tweet. Done. And, and so when I hear that, I think about, you know, the fact that one, we look at the population of America is roughly about black people make up roughly about 14%. Then you look at the population of black male students 
uh, we're just talking about black male students in America's schools. They make up about six percent, roughly, which is about their but their overall the overall number of black men in general in America. But when you look at the number of black male teachers, it's less then it's like less than half and less than half of that. So it's like you said 1.2 to 1.3%. Those are the most current numbers. We have 6% of the students are black boys and only 1% of the teachers are black men. So think about how many young males aren't getting that experience that you just, that you just talked about. Not only is it just the fact that he can feel the love that you've helped him, uh, you know, manage his emotions, learn about how to find healthy ways to express himself. He was talking to you about his hair. And these are things that only another black person, black man in this instance can relate to him about. Like, you know, like, yes, of course, white teachers can talk about hair and they can understand about black people and black history, but they can't be us. Like the same way that, you know, if a white student was to go up to a white man and talk about his hair and like, you know, how he's doing it or how he's styling it in a certain way, you can you he, he knows that you understand and he doesn't have to question whether or not. OK, does this person like if I ask Mr. Gray, not only will he give me an honest uh, assumption or honest, uh, you know, assessment of what I'm saying. He also understands because he shares the same type of physical features that I have. And these are things that students innately know and that our students as black students, they're at a disadvantage because they don't have enough people who are like them that they're around. And, you know, like we as people and as humans, we need, uh, you know, a cornucopia of experiences. I had white teachers that I loved. I have white males, white females, Asian teachers. Indian teachers, all types of, I mean, Indians are Asians, you know what I mean, but like all different types of ethnicities and races that of teachers, and they all taught me different things and I, I needed to see them all. And there's a study by uh, Johns Hopkins that says that when black students have black teachers, that they're like 30% more likely to graduate high school and like 18% more likely to graduate college when they have just one black teacher in grades three to five, something like that. I, I don't, don't like, I, I know that the, that's roughly the, the figures, but basically we know that this is true. All students benefit from having all types of teachers, but this, but this small population, we are too small. We have to at least be representative of the percentage of black men in America. So I'm thinking like, if we can get it up to like five, 6%, I would be happy with that. And we would, I think we would see a lot more that uh, we would just see a lot more students being able to relate to people that are in their classrooms. And, you know, there's research that says that students do better when they have teachers that look like them and share their genders. And there's, there's, uh, there's research that says it doesn't. But when we just talk about the human factor, I feel more comfortable when I'm in a space with people who can identify and who are like me. No one wants to walk into a room and be the only of any type of thing. That's just a very ostracizing feeling and it makes you feel alone. And that's just a natural thing. So I think that as we have these conversations more and we push this agenda, we just have to be re very realistic and very transparent about what it, what, it, what it means to do this job so that people don't get into it and they don't have like a, 
unrealistic picture. Like they don't, they don't have this like kind of savior complex or uh, what they call it missionary type of thing where they're just going to come in and they're going to save these students. And like, it's not like that. If you think that's what you're going to do, you're going to get your butt kicked. You know, this is a hard job. And I understand yes. that it's not, it's not for everyone, but for the people who are dedicated and for the people who actually want to see a change in their community and in their society, this is a place that you can do it. Totally. And that even, that even goes into my why, you know, I already, I always loved school and my love for music, I say always comes from my mother. She filled the house with music and the type of music that she filled it with. I mean, she likes to say, I don't know where, where y'all got me and my twin sister who I've, I've told you also went to Morgan and majored in music there as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, she would wonder, you know, how we got that. I mean, the music you had us listen to growing up, I mean, it it's kind of natural the way we kind of caught on to it. But um, I always loved school, always loved my music teachers. My kindergarten music teacher actually was a black male. So I, so I remember him. I remember him pretty well. However, around third grade, school started to shift for me in a negative way. Um, that's when the bullying started for me about from third grade up to eighth grade. Those were very traumatic years for me, some more than others, but my music went from a joy to survival. Sixth grade was hard because I couldn't do choir that year because they couldn't fit it into my schedule. Factor that into puberty hormones everybody just starting to act a fool and let's just say the bullying got meaner it went from mean to just cruel to even at some points violent mm -hmm. and all my teachers no matter who they were played a role of keeping me going when I just wanted to just throw up my hands and say, I, I can't do this anymore. And just in time, when I got to high school, after dealing with suicidal ideation, I met my music educator and I had many others before that were amazing. But my music educator, who happened to be a white woman, she was the difference for me. Not because she not because she had like a white savior type of hat on. It was because she was herself. It was because she was fair. She was also extremely talented in what she did. She's retired now, but now she's starting a nonprofit of her own and she's still directing. And she helped me see the beauty in myself. She helped me see how I was, how good I was, even though I couldn't see it. And ultimately pushed me to pursue music as a performer. Becoming an educator was my choice just because of seeing how, what she did and her impact. And I just said, you know what? I want that impact. Her department literally saved my life. And I felt the need to pay it forward. Now, when I went in, I wasn't 100% thinking, oh, okay, because I'm black and male, I'm going to go in and I'm going to change the game because 
of all these discrepancies that we talked about? Because I didn't know. I honestly did not know just in my frame of reference at the time. Mm -hmm. Time is what shifted my motivation, just like your motivation has shifted over the years. It's mine has changed as well. And I see that once again, this year, especially how my presence there impacts an entire community. Mm -hmm. Because like you said, to some of these students, they're looking at us in ways that they might not get at home. They're looking at us in ways that they might not see in media. Mm -hmm. And as they get older, they will look back and they will see, wow, Mr. Eldridge, you go by Mr. E, right? Either one. Most kids, they struggle, they struggle with Eldridge, so I, they just they just stick to E. I'm right. Cool either, they will say Mr. E or Mr. Gray, even if they didn't really go into music or music wasn't their thing, because it's not everyone's thing. They'll mm -hmm. say, you know what? They cared about me, and I could at least see myself through them, and I felt the need to succeed because of them. Facts. And yeah, those are that is added to my motivation of in addition to an entire community, seeing, especially in the last several years, what we've dealt with as a community, doing my part to show that we are excellent, we are capable, and there's so much we can do. That's great, man. And, you know, it's always I, I have this thing where we always think back to those things that teachers have said, that our parents have said in the back of our minds. And, you know, we we might not understand it at that moment when we're going through it. But like, like you said, like the kids will never forget. Uh, it's funny. I was having I was on Facebook with some of uh, people I went to high school with and we were talking about some of our teachers and both good, bad and indifferent that we remember all of them. We remember the teachers who uh, dressed well, who treated us well, who were uh, very well spoken, who we felt had a good command of their subject matter. We also remember the teachers who didn't. We remember the teachers who, you know, we might have thought had a drinking problem or something like that. And it's like the kids will remember you. So how do you want to be remembered? And what is it that you want? What voice do you want playing in the back of your students' minds every time they think about you? When you uh, when you're describing that teacher who had such a great experience and pushing you to become a music educator or just to become an educator in general, I think back to uh, this man who was my sixth grade teacher. And and I grew up in Baltimore City. I, I know you're from. Uh, what is it? Uh, what is the name of your county? So um, I teach in Charles, Charles county. county. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And originally before I even lived in Maryland, originally I'm from D.C., Okay. So I was in DC public schools for well, really one year. Before that, I was in private school because um I needed some special ed services. But originally from DC, but yeah, Maryland majority of my life lived in PG for like four years, and then Charles County, Waldorf, Super Maryland, whatever <laughs> y'all like to call us. <laughs> yeah, that's where I'm, that's where I'm at. All right. So you know, uh, in my uh in my city, growing up in Baltimore. Uh, I was always kind of tracked into the academic class, the advanced academics. You know, they they recognized that I had a certain gift really young. And so when I got to sixth grade, 
uh, that we were in a class where, where it was a single gender class, all males, students, and we had a black man as a teacher. He was black and Hispanic. His name was Mr. Frederico Adams. And so in that uh, in that experience, like I didn't realize how transformative it was for me. But one of the things that he really did that always I always remember was he taught me how to tie a Windsor knot when I was 11. And so like things like that, like he probably didn't realize how big of a deal that was for me. But just in full transparency, I come from a family where it's not that education wasn't important. It's just that my parents had different, they had different uh, stipulations and different factors that affected their lives. So neither of my parents finished high school, but they were able, they propelled me to get my education because they knew that that would be the ticket and the way that I would be able to transform my life and my experience. So him teaching me how to tie that tie, when I think about my teachers, my teachers were the inspiration for me to show me that I could live a different life than the one that I was currently living. And he probably didn't understand how big that was for me. And so in my current uh, position, I, uh, I I dress up like, you know, I don't wear like blazers and ties every day, but every day I wear slacks, I wear a button down shirt. And some people, you know, I don't disparage anybody for any way they choose to dress. But I know that for me, seeing a, a person who looked like me and identified like me dressed that way, it inspired me and it let me know that, okay, maybe one day I can have a job where I'll have to wear, you know, professional clothing to work and, you know, do something different than I would have envisioned myself doing otherwise. And sometimes for our students, we're the gateway to their future. Whether we realize it or not, we're the people that they look at and see who they want to become. And, you know, a lot of times kids don't have dreams of becoming teachers, but th that it's it's a very realistic possibility for a lot of them. For me, it was the perfect career. I get to teach and learn for a living. Two things I'm very, very interested in. But I didn't know that when I was a kid. I just was like, I'm, I'm, I like being intelligent. I like being smart. I like learning stuff. I didn't know that I would that being an educator is really what I was supposed to do. I'm supposed to teach. I'm supposed to learn because this is really, really what I enjoy doing. I enjoy learning and teaching. So this is a perfect career for me. But, you know, the teachers that I had, they were the inspiration to make me want to keep learning and make me want to keep pursuing my education. So every day when we step into those classrooms, we have to be very cognizant of the messages and the, uh, the underlying and implicit messages that we're sending without even speaking. Sometimes like, you know, the, the ways that we present ourselves, it, it tells students a lot more than we might uh, realize. Definitely. The way we carry ourselves, the way we also, when we set our expectations and also how we hold ourselves to our expectations too. My students know I apologize every day. Mm -hmm. because I want them to know that if I'm holding you accountable, I'm going to hold myself accountable. You know, whether if A, I teach a lesson wrong, I'm like, y'all, I'm sorry. I totally got that wrong. See, mm -hmm. I, I'm not perfect either. Yes, I'm the adult in the room, but I'm not perfect either. Or if I lose my patience mm -hmm. and maybe something is said that, okay, that was pointed or 
that was sarcastic or that was a little too much. And right. I noticed, okay, now the kid is taking that, they're internalizing it. And now they're, I'm like, all right, everybody, everybody sit down, everybody breathe. Right. All right. Mr. Gray is in the red zone right now. We, my school has this thing called zones of regulation, um, which a lot of schools have adopted. And I'll say I'm in the red zone because right now I'm right now I'm a little angry. Mm-hmm. I'm in the yellow zone. I'm a little frustrated. I'm in the blue zone. I'm feeling kind of sad or I'm or I'm in the green zone. I am happy. Go lucky. Let's go. Mm-hmm. But I will let them know. I'm not in the green zone right now. And now some of you have felt that, but you didn't deserve that. So I'm going to apologize for what I said. Now, I still need you to fix that. Yeah. But <laughs> here is me modeling when we when we let the, our emotions get the better of us. Mm-hmm. Here's me modeling what to do to hopefully make it right. That's so real, man. And I, I have like, you know, teachers are human. Whether people like sometimes we, people set expectations for us that aren't realistic, of course. And I have like, I, like I, it was like an epiphany I had. There's no way that you're going to stand, especially as resource teachers. We teach different groups of kids all the time. If there's any behavioral issue that you uh, that is in your building, it's coming through your door. So it's not like where you have one set of students and you might have this one kid who you know this child's triggers, you know the things they're going to set them off, you know their uh, baseline. I mean, you end up knowing all the kids' baseline, but it's like where you know, well, this kid's off and I know exactly how to deal with it. When you're a resource teacher, you have to learn that for like hundreds of children, like literally. Like there are times where I've had to do grades for like three or four hundred kids at the end of a semester. So there's no way that you're going to stand in front of a group of children especially different groups of children for 180 days and never say anything that you wish you could take back. And I think that that's a lot of, that's something that a lot of teachers maybe don't want to, they don't want to have that real conversation. Now, should you be in front of kids cursing or saying inappropriate things? Obviously that's never acceptable, but I think we've all said things to kids as like, man, who we're reflective. Good teachers are reflective. You reflect on the things that have happened when there's something that happens or you might feel like in the moment, like, hmm, like I'll give a case in point. Last week I was giving I'm going through something called the model teacher process at my school. I mean, from my district. Right. So a part of that is you have to conduct a pretest and a post assessment and kind of show how you've been able to grow students from their baseline and give the different assessments or different activities leading up to the post assessment and show how you were able to do things to actually push the students beyond the standard level of achievement. So uh, in my third grade recorder class, general music, I've been teaching. Uh, we, we were starting with Hot Cross Buns. So the first song we learned was Hot Cross Buns. So anybody who's taught third grade recorder, know, especially using the recorder karate curriculum, knows that the first three songs are what we call the bag songs, using B-A-G, all left-hand notes, really teaching the basis of, you know, kind of woodwind instruments in general. Because for saxophone, flute, uh, clarinet, 
it's all the same in terms of how your left hand is a, is positioned above your right hand. So the recorder models that. So I'm bringing it back to the general music conversation. If you didn't notice, I'm good at this. So, uh, <laughs> so, um, so yes, this, yes. So, this, so there's one it. little, I love it. One little lady. She, um, so basically students should know the bag notes by now. So the second song in the gently sleep, I mean, in the uh, recorded karate curriculum is gently sleep. So it uses the same notes as uh, hot cross buns. And if you are actually learning and you did well on the hot cross buns, then you might not be able to perfectly do the gently sleep because it has different rhythms and the notes are configured differently, but it's the same notes. So, you know, we came up to do, she came up to do her, um, her play test for, uh, for hot cross buns. And she was like, totally like, she didn't know where to put her fingers she didn't know what, what to do. She was totally lost. And I'm like, you can't play a beat. Like, cause at least I'm like, all right, if you can't play the song, at least show me that you can play the notes, you know, to play a beat. She like, didn't know where to put her fingers. So I'm like, okay. I was like, that means that you haven't been paying attention. And I kind of like, you know, I wasn't mean, but I was very matter of fact about what I was saying. I told her what she didn't do what and that what she should have done in order to be successful. And then I just, I didn't even let her finish the test. I just told her, go ahead, have a seat. Cause I could tell that she couldn't play it. So she internalized that. She, obviously she's a student who's very used to succeeding. So when she comes into music and it's a little bit more difficult and I've had a lot of students break down in my class because they're used to just being successful at everything they do. And this is different. You know, you have to use different parts of your brain. It's uh, you have to use your memory. You have to use your physical skills. You have to be able to breathe. You have to do be able to do so many things simultaneously that for some students, it takes a while. So she was really upset with the fact that she didn't do well. And so, you know, at the end of the class, I told the students, I'm like, listen, you can, if you didn't do well on the play test, you can retake your test. You can do you can do what you need to do in order to be able to pass because, it's, you know, it's not like, OK, you failed. That's it. Like, you know, that's never I never want to fail my students. I always want them to do well. So they'll always have opportunities to retake tests. But she was just really upset about it to the point where she went back to class. And like mom, one of my administrators reached out to me like, hey, is she going to be able to retake the test? I'm like, of course, I told the kids that. But the fact is, is like I, I, I was able to reflect and it was like I probably could have been a little bit softer this is a third grade third grader you know who and you even though my standards are high and i want to communicate to kids that i want them to be great and i want them to do well and when you don't do well it's not a good thing i don't want to be making kids cry that's not what i want to like have be my uh that's not the imprint that i want to leave so i had to like really like kind of look at myself and be like that's not the story that i want and so, you know, I, I have to be more proactive about, you know, just being finding better ways and, you know, being in the moment, not being so punitive in my responses to the things that kids may not do well. And so that's one way that I'm trying to reflect because my band director is just being honest, you know, some of the times if, if I didn't do something well, they'd be like, Otis, you did this and you didn't do that and you need to do this. And this is how you can get better. And it wouldn't be like a a, a lot of like, you know, emotional or like, you know, like uh, petting up or like, you know, hugging and stuff like that. Whereas my kids, you know, I hug them. I like, you know, I let them know that emotionally I want you, you in order for me to be able to teach you, you have to be emotionally. Okay. You can't be upset and you can't be like, like feeling like I don't love you. 
or that I don't care about you and expect me to be able to learn from, expect to be able to learn from you. So hearing you say that uh, is, is like, I really appreciate that. And I think that that as black men, being able to be in touch with our emotions shows kids that it's okay for you to, as a man, for you to be like, I'm wrong. And like, not only am I wrong, like I also have emotions and I feel like, you know, and sometimes as boys, we are conditioned and like, kind of like people are trying to like, like push that out of us. Like, no, you don't cry. You don't feel like, no, like you have to be able to feel because the empathy, the sympathy, to be able to feel other people as other people's emotions is what is important for us as human beings in order for you to be a fully developed person. So us as black men, I think we bring that when we, when we're able to tap into our emotions and we're able to be nurturers, we, we actually are very, very powerful in what we can do for children. 100%, 100%. And like you said, when a student says, Mr. Gray or Mr. E, can I hug you? Mm -hmm. That is their, or when they just reach, or when they just reach up and they don't even ask. Oh, no, they don't ask most of the time. That, oh, yes, yes, yes. And that, that is their nonverbal way, especially if they don't ask. That's their nonverbal way of saying, I am safe with you. Yep. My walls are down, especially, especially pre-K kindergarten oh, yeah. when they are walking into a, for example, for example, my school is the biggest in, the biggest elementary school in the county by way of population. And our school size is pretty sizable too. There's a few that are bigger, but we have, but we're biggest in population. So say if you go from a smaller school to our school, it's like going from a schoolhouse to a campus. Or in general, even if that's your first experience, it's still pretty large. So when they're going into this world and they're away from their parents, possibly for the first time ever, those walls are up. They don't know anybody. There's all these other older adults who they don't know. Mm -hmm. And their parents are entrusting us with them for this time. Yep. I'm going to make sure for the 45 minutes that I have you once a week, you know that this is this is not only a classroom, but it is it's an oasis. It's a fortress. It is a safe place. And again, your teacher's not going to get it right all the time. And when he gets it wrong, he's going to let you know. He's going to tell you what emotions he might have felt that might have gotten him to that point. Or just whatever preparation didn't go well. <laughs> and that when we all leave out of here, we are supported. We are loved. We are also held accountable. And this is the place where you can be yourself no matter what you look like, no matter where you come from and no matter your background. Facts, man. Like uh, I have this, I, you know, I, there's a, a concept in research that is uh, called other fathering where basically uh, as what people might not realize this, that when you're a teacher, you are a surrogate parent to the students. I it took me like really becoming a grown man, like a grown up adult Just like, hold up. These kids spend just as much time with us as they do with their parents. 
If we think about it, most of the time we're spending seven to eight hours a day with these students. Uh, most of the, like, so when the kids get off work, I mean, get off work, when the kids get off school, they might get home at what, three, three thirty, four. sometimes some of them have aftercare. They might not get home until six thirty, seven o'clock. Hopefully they're in bed by nine ish, nine, 10, maybe if they're on the lead in. So they're probably spending two or three hours with their parents every day. They're spending eight hours with us every day. Now, some kids may, they may spend their whole weekend. A lot of kids, they may spend some weekend with their parents, some weekends with the auntie, some weekends with the grandma or some other, uh, other type of parental figure or guardian in their life. So when we talk, when we're thinking about how much time we spend with these kids, we're spending just as much, if not more time with them than their parents. So when they, like you said, when they come into our care, I look at it as this. How would I want someone to treat my child? Would I want them to treat my child as if this is just a job they have? Or would I want them to treat my child as if they're this kid's parent in this moment? Because we are that ch child's parent. I looked, I, I, I came up with a name, school dad. Like your dad might be dad when you, you're at home. But when you come to school, I'm school dad. I love so, that. You know, like I might not, I, of course, I'm not going to like, you know, there's certain things that your dad's going to do for you that I won't do for you. But at the end of the day, I'm going to love you and care about you the same way your dad would. And you're going to feel that from me. And that's why the walls come down because the kids know like, okay, this is not just a person in here standing here teaching me music. Like, yes, is a, he does all of those things, but this person actually is invested in who I become as a person. He actually cares about me, like even when I'm not doing the right thing. Uh, and as I've grown as a teacher, I've realized that I kind of gravitate more toward the challenging kids because those are the kids. I had a professor once. He said, when kids are like acting out in school, they tend to get pushed away. Those are the kids that get put in suspension or they get put into other types of programs that ostracize them when in fact they need the opposite. They're the kids who need to be pulled closer because they're showing you that there's a deficit of some sort that there. So they're showing you that they need more attention. They need more love. They need more support, not less. They're not, they don't need to be sent home and pushed away from the school. And I was like, huh, because most of the time when a kid is acting out or they do something wrong, our first uh, instance or first idea is to suspend the kid or put them in, in school suspension or some type of punitive type of behavior. But it's like what what that trains a lot of kids because kids aren't they 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 aren't dense. They realize like, OK, if there's ever a time I really want to get out of class, all I got to do is act out and then I won't have to deal with 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 whatever challenges. As, but as a teacher, if you figure out how to deal and like stick in it with the kid when it's challenging, what they'll realize is that, wow, I can't scare this person off. They're going to be here with me. They're going to go through the good. They're going to go through the bad and everything in between. And so what it does is that it gives the student a level of respect for you. And they understand that you're an authoritative figure in their life. Like, man, like Mr. E's not going to run to the principal or he's not going to run to this person every time something happens with me. He's going to talk to me. He's going to try to figure it out. If I need a timeout, he's going to put me in timeout. And then when I'm calm, he's going to bring me back 
that. And he's going to talk to me about why what I did was the wrong thing and how I can do better. And when he's disappointed with me, he's going to say, I'm disappointed with you. And I have so much higher expectations for you. And I know that you can do much better. You're so much smarter than that. And so sometimes I know for me, when a teacher that I really loved and I really, really cared about and they expressed disappointment in me, oh man, that was the worst feeling ever. And I never wanted an adult who I cared about to be disappointed in me. That is like such a terrible feeling for a child. And sometimes it's just, it can be just that simple. You don't have to be mean to them. You don't have to be punitive. You can just like, I'm disappointed in your behavior. I know you're capable of something so much better than that. And they like, wow, like, I don't want to disappoint Mr. E. I know that he has my best interest at heart. And, you know, they're kids. They're not going to be snapped to it like adults would. However, they start to internalize that and they start to feel those feelings. So, man, it's just it's great to just debrief with you and be able to see. And, you know, when we have these conversations, we get to see like, oh, I'm not the only one who feels this way. I'm not, I'm my, my experience is not singular or uh, particular to me. Like, you know, we have certain similarities, obviously through our race and gender, and we are going to have certain similar experiences based on those things. And, you know, we're always obviously different people, but I think that the more we have these kinds of conversations, the better it's, it'll be for us. And as, as black male educators, because we do need to feel a sense of support. Like, as you said, like there's this uh, theory that kind of goes, it's called the lunch table theory, where people that are alike always coalesce together, you know, whether it's uh, girls on a swim team or guys in the band or whoever, people who have shared experiences and attributes will always seek each other out. And even if they're different, they'll still find those common grounds. And those things are very important for us, our sustainability as humans. We need to be able yes. to have support and feel like, okay, there's someone who really understands me and there's someone that I can truly be my full, the fullest version of myself Yep. And especially in this field where it is so hard, no matter who you are, it is so hard. We need that support in order for us to have the will just to keep going. And once again, that's why the current fifth grade, the fifth grade teacher who I talked about earlier, every time we see each other, we are talking to each other and the tone is always it's always motivative it's always like you got this we've got this it's going to be awesome and otis as we end as we start to end this i want you to know you've been that for me as well i still remember when well first how i even got involved with mmea first was through dr edrin coleman um the the former president of mcea who got me on to their component to help out with Allstate. And then, you know, the nominations came for the general music component. And I remember when the results came in for that election. And not only did I see my headshot, but I saw yours. And I read your bio and I was like, okay. Another another Morgan person. (laughs) The first thought was, I wonder if he knows my sister, but we've had that conversation. Yeah. And I still remember the first um, retreat that we went to last summer Mm -hmm. and hearing you speak just as eloquently as you did tonight. You know, when I'm new to something, I I'm not the most talkative 
because I'm kind of just filling it out and trying to understand what my role is, hopefully without overstepping. But you, on the other hand, you had such an insightful comment for just about everything we spoke about. And you had the whole room. I don't know if you noticed, the whole room was like. <laughs> <laughs> in a good way. Everyone was just like, he's yeah, amazing. Man. Where has he been? So, <laughs> Otis, I want to thank you, one, for joining us once again. I mean, we can literally go on all night. But once again, one, thank you for being here. And two, thank you for being just one. For, for being one of the several factors that kept me going through my challenging year last year. And that's why when I thought about this as a subject, I just couldn't think of anybody else who I could invite onto this. So thank you for being here. Man, I, I really, truly, truly appreciate that. And, you know, hearing you say that is like, wow. Cause you know, um, we all have, um, we have like, you know, feelings and perception about ourselves, but you don't know how other people feel about you. And you can't, it's not your business, as they say, of of what other people think about you. You know, we all have things that we want to project into the world and things that we want people to feel about us. But it's 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 so like, it just makes me feel really good to to hear that you were able to receive me in that kind of way. Because, you know, you've always been a person who was very welcoming, very inviting. And, you know, even though we came onto the board newly at the same time, I was just walking in. I, you know, I didn't know anyone, like literally, I didn't know anyone. So it's like, to like, you know, saying the same thing to see you, see Edrin, to see Tony, it was like, okay, well, I'm not the only black person. And that made me feel more at home. And, you know, that I, when I met you guys in a more personal sense, it was like, okay, these these are people that I can really, that I can, I can get with. Cause you know, my journey to MMEA was a little bit different. Like, you know, uh, my, my district doesn't have a ton of engagement and just being honest with you. And, you know, that's something that I'm trying to uh, personally affect, uh, you know, showing people that, listen, uh, I understand that historically the, the organization has been a certain way. We're trying to change that. There are things that are changing about this organization that I've seen just in my one and a quarter years as a member at large. So, you know, I think that it, with more voices like ours and more people like, you know, that have different experiences and bring different types of things to this, uh, to this gumbo, to this pot, it'll only improve and it'll only, you know, continue to progress. So I thank you for doing the work because it's, it's, we could, we're, we're here at 9 PM right now. You know, this is my I, honestly, I'm just going to this is my third meeting after work that I've had tonight. Bless so, you. you know, and that's and that's that's what we do when we sign up to, you know, do things outside of work. You have to be willing to put in those extra hours and put in that extra time. But it's because we love this job, because we want the next generation and the next people coming behind us to have the information that we might not have had access to and to be inspired to do this job and to do it at a very, very high level. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here because we didn't have to run for offices in MMEA. Thankfully, we were both able to get elected, but we could have just ignored that email like a, a ton of other teachers, they'd be like, oh, I don't have time for this in my schedule. But we understood that our voices were so extremely important and that we needed to be at the table 
in order to be able to speak for the people who can't speak for themselves. So I want just like you're thanking me, I'm thanking you for for doing this work because I know that it's it's hard, especially when you have your job, you have your family, you have personal life, you have so many other things that are asking for your time. But yet here we are at 9 p.m. having a conversation about being black male general music teachers and what that means for us and how that affects uh, us as people in our state and our, our schools and our uh, in our district. So, you know, this kudos to you for uh, for taking the time and having the energy and effort to do something like this, man. It's so very, very important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Man, like I said, we could go on all night, but everybody, I hope that you all have a real sense of just how how impactful this topic is. And I'll implore in your schools, wherever you are, always strive for equity, always strive for diversity, always strive to be welcoming to anybody. If you find somebody in your school, on your team, however you're kind of divided out in your school, who seems left out, they seem like they're struggling, they seem like they're having issues with relating to people, seek them out, reach out to them. Because again, a conversation more than likely is what helped the two of us get to where we are as board members and as educators. Your, what you share with these others, support, just saying hello in the morning can be the all the difference of that teacher quitting, leaving and never looking back or staying and seeing it through. So everybody, that is tonight's step-by-step with some skips along the way. Otis, (laughs) again, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. All right, everybody, we thank you, and we will chit-chat with y'all next time.